welcome to episode 75 of the Eyes Free Sports Podcast. This is your host, Greg Lindbergh. Here on episode 75, we are visiting with a gentleman from Cleveland, Ohio, who is a Hall of Famer in beat baseball and also highly accomplished blind bowler. In addition to a number of other adaptive sports for the blind, he has tried. So let's get rolling now with episode 75. Okay, so joining me here on this episode of Eyes Free Sports is Wilbert Turner. And Wilbert is a Hall of Fame beat baseball player and also a world record holder uh, in bowling. Wilbert, welcome to Eyes Free Sports. Thank you. Absolutely. Really appreciate you joining uh, the podcast and super excited to dig into your adaptive sports career and just uh, your life in general. So why don't we just kick things off here on the episode, uh, just speaking about your early years as far as where you were born and your childhood. Uh, yes, I was born in a small town in Alabama, Marion, Alabama, and I was one of the few visually impaired children born in such a small town. As a matter of fact, I was uh, born in 1953 and I was actually born at my grandmother's house. My grandmother was a midwife. So my parents did not learn that I was visually impaired until I was old enough not to reach for toys and stuff like that. So they thought that was strange. So that was the first knowledge of them knowing that I was uh, born with a visual impairment. Uh, something else that I thought was unique about that is because it was a small town and they didn't know anything about the school for the blind. I was fortunate that my mother was a, also a school teacher. So I had some usable vision at that point. I think about 20 over 400 by the time I was school age. And my mother would use a flip chart paper and rewrite my books. So she would take watercolors and draw the words on the flip chart, and then she would color them in so I could read at the first grade. And then she ran into someone that knew about the School for the Blind in Talladega, Alabama. So from the second grade until I graduated, I attended the School for the Blind in Talladega. And somewhere about the ninth grade was when I started getting actively involved with sports. Hmm. I, ran, I ran track. Uh, and I also wrestled. And I learned how to swim. So in high school, I ran track, I swam, and I wrestled. Wow. So a tri-sport athlete, you could say. Yeah. So plus, you know, I guess my background, my family members were athletic. My dad was a baseball pitcher, and some of my uncles played football and baseball. Unfortunately, uh, well, I had one uncle that was drafted by the Minnesota Twins, but he never played for them hmm. because my grandfather was one of those old Southern Baptist guys, and he didn't believe in playing ball on Sunday. <laughs> and, <laughs> and my uncle had gone to New York. Uh, he was a bricklayer, so they was building a housing project in Poughkeepsie. 
And when the twins went to his house to try and recruit my uncle to play baseball, my grandfather wouldn't tell him how to reach him. So he missed out on his opportunity to be a Minnesota twin. Darn but he bummer. Played, but he played college ball with uh, Tommy Agee and Cleon Jones at uh, Alabama A&M. So, oh, wow. That's <laughs> Some cl- but he never made it to the majors. How about that? Right, right. Wow. Very interesting. So after that, I went to Computer Systems Institute in Pittsburgh. And uh, I was not able to actually land a job as a computer programmer. So I heard about an IRS program in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I went and I was employed from that program by the Internal Revenue Service where I worked for 36 years. Mm. And during the time that I was working in the federal building, I ran into a young man by the name of Kevin Barrett who worked for the Department of Defense. And he asked me about playing beatball. I said, wow, I would love to. But I've never seen the game. I've never seen or heard of a beatball. Right. And he said, well, come to practice. And he said, I'll meet you in the lobby. Prior to that, I had heard about a beatball team that they had at the Cleveland Site Center. But because I was working, I always got to the Site Center maybe five or ten minutes after they had already departed the center for practice. So I was kind of excited running into Kevin. And unlike most ball players, I was already 33. So I didn't get to play as a kid. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, kind of discovered it later, later on. (laughs) Yeah. But it turned out that once I learned the game, I was a pretty good defensive player. And uh, so as a result of that, for example, the one year in uh, Colorado, I think I had 44 putouts in the World Series. Oh, wow. And that one little series alone. So I made several all-star teams on defense and I made a few all-star teams also on offense. But I think most people remember my defensive skills. But even now, I'm a 68-year-old man. And when I walk up to the plate, uh, people still kind of take a few steps back because I still have a pretty good bat. Right. So in 19, no, 2015, they started the Hall of Fame for beat baseball players. So we had a ceremony in Rochester, New York. And me and one of my teammates, who was actually deceased at the time, were among the first two inductees into the beat baseball Hall of Fame. Wow. And I'm curious, like, what are the, the qualifications or how does someone, you know, become eligible for that? Uh, you have to be in at least, uh, I think it's a minimum of four championship teams. You have to have so many uh, awards and tournaments. You have to have a band average at certain levels. I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but you have to you have to be a winner in several categories before you get chosen for the Hall of Fame. Sure, sure. And then just digging a little further into your beatball career. So I know you played with the Cleveland Scrappers for a long time. Any other teams as well? 
Well, actually, I played for the Cleveland Scrappers from like 1986. And actually, I still play for them a little bit. And I also played uh, a couple of years ago, just prior to the pandemic, for what they call the Beat Baseball Legends. And what happened that year, they formed a team of guys that had either made the Hall of Fame or if they hadn't made the Hall of Fame at this point, they they have won some championships, some batting crowns, or some some defensive awards. So this this team was called uh, Legends, Beat Baseball Legends. And I think all of these the persons on this team were fifty or older. So I surpassed that number. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yep, like the AARP team, right? <laughs> hey, there you go. As a matter of fact, that's the chant that my team give now. Since I'm still currently playing, whenever I score a run, my teammates chant, give me an A, A, give me an A, A, R, R, P. What's that saying? A, A, R, P. So <laughs> that's my new chant when I score. <laughs> love it. Love it. Um, so as far as on the field, I know you mentioned you, you're definitely known for your defensive uh, prowess, shall we say. And so what positions do you like playing? Have you kind of played all over the field? Just talk to me about your, your defensive work. I've played all over the field. I started out in center field. Then I moved to left field. Then I played a little third base. And now that I'm a, an older person, I play more on first base or right field side. Right. I see. Yeah. Kind of like, you know, regular baseball when the guys get old and they still hit well, they they turn them into first basements. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. <laughs> yep, we'll still put you out there, but you got to be at first, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. And then so how many titles, uh, how many championships have you actually won in your career? Actually, as far as being on a championship team, the Cleveland Scrappers have only finished third. Um, we have never, we've never actually won a championship as a team. Sure, sure. But hey, third place is still pretty darn good. <laughs> it was. I consider it pretty good considering that we have teams across the United States and we also have teams that come from Taipei, Taiwan, occasionally in the last couple of years, we've had a team from Canada. So we make it a World Series for sure, for real. Absolutely different than, you know, the regular baseball World Series, which is just the U.S., you know, unless, say, the Blue Jays get in. But it truly is an international competition. Right. And what would you say you enjoy most about the game of beatball, just kind of reflecting on your career and what uh you know what really kind of gets even today your juices going when you get out there i think the part i enjoy the most is the competitive spirit and and i enjoy meeting people from various parts of the country and various parts of the world and and just the the joy of competing friendly competition Right. Absolutely. I definitely concur in the, the time I've gotten to play. And then in terms of the Hall of Fame, I'm curious, what did that mean to you to get that honor, to get that recognition of being in this, you know, enshrined in this this truly elite group of individuals? I um, I never envisioned 
being uh, in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I think I went out and played for fun, and and it happened. So it was it was a surprise. Uh, it's an award I won't ever forget. Um, I feel I feel excited about being nominated, and you know. Uh, I don't know. I get lost for words. It's, but it's, it's very special. Sure. Sure. That's awesome. And did you receive any kind of plaque or certificate or what's kind of the process of, you know, actually getting inducted? It, it, it happened during the, the world series. It was actually being held in Rochester the year that I was in 2015. And I got a plaque uh that's had my numbers on it my stats wow. and uh it had uh the fact that i was one of the first inductees and so it's, it's actually a plaque that, that i can that i hang on my wall in my house and uh, it, it's awesome oh yeah yeah hey kudos and, and major congrats on that that's uh definitely quite an honor so let's transition over to bowling. So in addition to be baseball, I know you've been bowling for many, many years now. And let's just kind of start from the beginning uh, with that sport. How did you get into bowling? Well, actually, bowling was kind of interesting because I, when I was at the school for the, blind, for the blind as a little kid, at some point, I'll say we didn't actually have a bowling team. But when I was going attending school uh the older kids used to go bowling and the younger kids used to set up pins hmm. so i was among the younger kids and this was before they had the pin setting machines oh yeah yep. so, so my job was to be down in the pit and when you knock the pins down i would get down there and stand them back up they had these little metal discs in the floor. So as a result of standing the pins up, setting up the pins, I learned the position of all the pins. So when I moved to Cleveland and obtained employment, uh, sort of like beatball, I ran into someone in the building that I was working in that talked about a blind bowling league. And I says, wow, I'd like to try that. So I eventually joined, they call it the Greater Cleveland Blind Bowling League, probably about 1977. And uh, I continued to bowl and compete. Uh, that was pretty much uh, done across the United States. So I bowled in several bowling tournaments and what have you. And then around 2001, a gentleman from the U United States Association of Blind Athletes approached the uh, American Blind Bowling Association about participating in USABA uh, Olympic-type sports. Hmm. They, they have all kinds of sports in the USABA, but they didn't have bowling. Right. And the American Blind Bowling Association was the only uh, organized blind bowling group. I just happened to be 
president of the ABBA at that time. So he asked if he could present the offer at one of our board meetings. And when he made his presentation, I thought it would be good for us to participate, especially since we were the only organized bowling group in America. Sure. So I went to support, you know, uh, we had to get our own sponsorships. And the first official game was actually being held in Helsinki, Finland. There were about 15 different countries participating. And we solicited throughout America for people to, I think we took about 12 people to Helsinki. Mm. And we covered uh, Totally Blind. We covered Visually Impaired. So we had like three or four categories for men and women. And what I thought was unique about that, which was different from bowling in the U.S., is that we had the word blindfold. So that was my first time ever bowling on a blindfold. Interesting. If you, were, if you were considered totally blind, I think we had a doctor from France, a doctor from Singapore, a doctor from the United States. We had four different doctors to check your eyes to make sure that you fell into the visual category that they had set for this competition. Uh, the director of this event was from Singapore. So on the blindfold, somehow along the way, uh, I mentioned earlier about my competitive spirit. There was a, a young man out of California, Wayne Keeney, Los Angeles, California. He and I were among uh, some of the better totally blind bowlers in the United States. So, of course, we challenged each other. And uh, somewhere along the way, I managed to bowl a 207 scratch. Wow. <laughs> and, and they've had at least two other international competitions since that time. And my 207 still holds as the world's record. Wow. In, in international play. I'm pretty sure that there's some blind folk across the country that's probably bowled better than 207, but they've never done it in international, no, or to my knowledge, even in our competition. And we have a tournament every year in May. Sure. That's amazing. And what uh, to, you know, hold literally a world record, a global record. What does that mean to you? Uh, unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> because prior to that, I don't think I had bowling 207 myself. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like the blindfold gave you some good luck, right? <laughs> well, of course, it, it forced a different level of concentration. Sure. I think uh, just the wearing of a blindfold, uh, it's a mental, there's a slight mental complex, I believe. And I think that's true with baseball and bowling. Uh, even if you're totally blind and you can't see anything, in my case, I'm in a fog. 
I've heard a lot of people de describe being blind as seeing blackness. I don't see blackness, but I don't see anything. It's like clear. Hmm. There's no no shadows, no nothing. So if you can imagine uh, just seeing in a fog with nothing in it, right? That's kind of where I, that's kind of where I am, and so to put on a blindfold, your mental being tells you now it's black. It actually becomes dark. So it shuts down the fog, which I think is strange, but that's how it works. <laughs> I don't see nothing without the blindfold, but it appears that everything in front of me is a lot brighter. Right. When I put on a blindfold, it's like, you know, walking into the shade. Sure. Sure. Interesting. So you do think if, if you didn't wear the blindfold, let's say, for example, in beatball, that it would be more challenging to actually play? I don't think it'll be more challenging since I don't see any images either way. I think it's just the the thought of having on a blindfold uh, changes your focus. Right. Mentally. Yes. Gotcha. Very interesting perspective. And then uh, as far as bowling, I was curious if you could just explain the, the handrails that, uh, you know, a lot of blind bowlers use and kind of the adaptations. So, you know, the, the bowling rail is an interesting story. There's a, uh, there was a professional bowler, and I don't recall his name, out of Cincinnati. He and one of his friends used to prepare for professional champion bowling. And the friend uh, lost his vision probably to a disease such as diabetes or something like that. And they wanted to continue bowling. So they figured out that if they could put something that he could hold on to, they help him walk straight on the lane, that he could continue to practice with his friend. So they developed what we call a guide rail. And this rail is a one-inch uh, aluminum tubing, and it's been fixed where it stands about 36 inches tall. And the one that they initially made was a 15 feet, which is the length of a approach. Uh, we do now have some that uh, some people like the 12 foot but I prefer the 15 foot because it allows me to use the entire approach. But you don't squeeze it. You just slide your hand along the top of it to help you walk in the direction of the pins. It prevents you from throwing your ball on someone else's lane and that kind of thing. So the guide rail has made uh, blind bowling very com competitive. Absolutely. Yeah. And I finally got a chance to uh, try it myself. I know you and I met uh, not too long ago at a tournament in Daytona Beach, Florida. And I really found it to be very beneficial, quite a game changer. And it's it's like, wow, this, you know, such a simple adaptation that can really transform and, and allow individuals, you know, who need that extra kind of support to kind of line yourself up, like you said, to really be able to still participate. 
Yeah, I kind of got a funny story about that, too. You know, I went to uh, Little Rock, Arkansas to take some training in 1975. And at that time, I had not learned about uh, the guide rail and bowling. And I went bowling with one of my friends. And I threw a strike on somebody else's lane. <laughs> and they, and they, almost, they almost they threatened to beat me up. Then they learned that I was blind and couldn't see it. <laughs> so I have a real good appreciation for the guy in rail. Oh, uh, yeah. No question. <laughs> And I hope they were able to kind of transfer that strike over to your lane, but I don't know if. Yeah, no, I had to bowl over again. Oh, in fact, man. I think the bowler, the bowler center asked me not to bowl anymore. <laughs> One strike and you're out. Yeah, like baseball. <laughs> wow, very cool. <laughs> Um, as far as other sports, I know you did mention uh, track, uh, swimming, wrestling. Have you tried goalball? Any other sports kind of specifically for the blind? I've never tried goalball. Um, by the time I was introduced to goalball, I was afraid that my knees might not allow me to play. So to avoid potential injury, you know, I decided uh pass on that one sure i have tried and enjoyed throwing darts as a blind person oh yeah and that's another uh competition that blind people across the united states uh, has partic participated in so i think a guy out of minnesota developed a talking dart board so when you hit the bullseye, the board actually talks. It says bullseye, or it says 19, or wherever you hit on the board. If you hit in that area where it's audible, uh, it'll tell you exactly uh, where you threw your dice, your dart. And they have like a marking on the floor where you have to place your, your heels. Right. Of your shoes so that you can, you know, stand the exact everybody stand the same distance from the board and everybody's standing directly in front of the board. So, uh, and it's long enough that the width of that marker is also the width of the board in the front. So you can actually line yourself up from that starter point that's on the floor. And it's a portable. Thing. So you can take it to different bars, you know, because that's usually where dart competition is held in a bar. Or you can take it to your basement or some other spaces set aside. So it's not like a fixed arena like a bowling center might be or a baseball field. So it's a portable uh, setup. So it's pretty, pretty interesting competition. Definitely. Yeah, I did have a chance to try it at uh, an ACB convention at one point. And, and they use nylon tilt darts uh, so that, you know, in case someone get hit, you know, get severely injured, injured with the steel points. That's right. Yup, yup. And uh, so just to wrap up here, um, as far as advice that you would give to someone maybe who's never participated in any kind of adaptive sports or 
is interested in trying something, what's kind of that, that first step that they should take and just, you know, if, if they might be fearful or nervous about trying one of these sports, what would you tell that individual? My experience with playing adaptive sports is that number one, it builds your own personal self-esteem. Uh, anytime you seek to do something you've never done before, uh, the, you are your first critic and you say, wow, I can't do that. I've never done that. I don't know how to do that. And you kind of almost need someone to encourage you to do that. And what I recommend is that you always try it. Because if you try it and get good at that, it encourages you to try things other than sports. Uh, I've seen it trickle down to the workplace, to interacting with people in the community. You just feel better about yourself once you become uh, active and you start to improve on something that you had a little doubt about. So I still participate actively in blind sports now because as a advocate for people with visual impairments, when I tell them something that they should try, I can speak from experience as opposed to saying it should work for you. I can tell you I know it'll work for you because it worked for me and several people like you. So try it. Do not refuse to try it. That's what I would say because it's good for your self-esteem. It can be good for your ego. And it can it'll be good for you to take some chances to improve the quality of life. Absolutely. Could not have uh, relayed that message any better myself, so really appreciate that. Okay, so our guest on this episode again has been Wilbert Turner. And uh, Wilbert, really appreciate the time. Congrats on all of your achievements and accolades, and uh, thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. And thank you for having and I hope my story helps someone else uh, go and create their story. Absolutely. Alrighty, thanks so much again, Wilbert. Really appreciate it. Be sure to follow the Eyes Free Sports podcast at facebook.com slash eyesfreesports and on Twitter at eyesfreesports.com.